The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, welcome to Tuesday episode of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only. You actually don't look like a frog today. You look like you're in a good mood. It's amazing. I'm just tired. <laughs> you should be tired more often because most of the time you sit over there looking yeah. like an angry fucking toad. Well, I, I told you I always have resting bitch face. That's and my, true. And my brother has that I hate everybody, don't fuck with me face. He has kids now, young kids. I don't blame him for having that face. He's always had that face, though. <laughs> All right, Tammy Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. All right, this is part one of a two-parter. So yes. you just shoot it on out there. Yes. Let's do it. This is okay. This is going to be really weird. Okay, so um, I'm going to kind of set it up a little bit in regards to history of crime in general and serial killing specifically. There are documented cases as far as familial relations when it comes to um, committing murders together. Okay, we've had two cousins before. Think of the Bianchi, you know, the Hillside Stranglers. Right. And then we've had brothers before. Um, <laughs> then remember in um, episode 112 and 117, I talked about the Spahalski brothers. Right. Um, one of the brothers committed murder. He only killed one person. And then several years later, his other, the other, bro- the other twin, they were identical twins. The other twin um, became a serial killer, but he adapted the same. I- they had identical killing methods. Remember? Right. Okay. Remember that. Yeah. yeah. We talked about that one. And then when we talked about in episode 12, we talked about the family of murders where we brought up the Weavers. Right, we had the Weavers. Yeah, we, we had, had Weaver uh, Se- we- Weavers Jr. and Weaver the Third. Correct. Right, and that that was a father who was accused of serial killing is on death row in California, and his son is here in Oregon who got uh, was a serial killer out of uh, Oregon City. Correct. Well, not a serial, but he well he killed, he killed two, two but he was he was ready to kill a third. When he got busted. Remember? Right, he actually had, had actually said that. Yeah, to he told her sister. The sister. I, yeah, yeah. If they hadn't caught me, you would have been next. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so we have, you know, that's family separated, okay? Now, for the, and when it comes to familial teams in general, though, there's a higher chance that the teams will consist of a couple, whether they're right. married or in a sexual relationship, than they are any other familial like relationship. Like Lucas and Till. Yeah. They met Jacksonville, yeah, Florida. They were they a did couple. A little, they did a little poke and suck, and they, uh, they, they, said, Let's go they kill saw people. each other across the smoky soup kitchen room. I saw you across the smoky well, soup kitchen. And when it comes to serial killing in general, there is documented history of, you know, like certain members of the family being serial killers in totally separate cases, too. Like, for instance, Lucas Henry Lee Lucas is a, a distant cousin with Bobby, Bobby Joe Long. Yeah, right. You know, and then I t- just talked about the Weavers and everything. So there is that as well. However, with the case I'm going to talk to you today, it's unique in general. As well, the in fact, to date, this is the only case in American history of this dynamic. It's the Rains family. They're from Kalamazoo, Michigan. That is right here on the. I fucking hate if you. If you hold up your mitten, it's like right above the wrist, down between the ring finger and the Son pinky. Son of a bitch! It's the stupidest fucking thing. Where are you from in Michigan? Oh, let me hold up my hand and show you. Why don't you just fucking tell me? Because they have to show you. Retarded. Anyway, it's the only state you can do that to. <laughs> Anyways, um, so this... Uh, hold on, no. You could do it with Florida. 
No, you can do that with the. I call it the mullet or the armpit. You can do it with Florida if you have a mullet. You can go. I'm from here. Yes, hair on the party. The party well, side. Well, I have said that before. I said it's either you can either call it the a the armpit of the panhandle or the underside of the mullet. <laughs> I have said that before. That's right. I mean, you can point anywhere on it. You see, I'm halfway between the the, the business in the front and the party in the back. Or right if here, you got a tattoo looking. of it, you can say I'm from right oh here. Oh my god, like that one got a tattoo of Florida. <laughs> Where do you live, sir? Oh, I see the Florida tattoo. We got to get you back yeah. over to your so state. So we're both in that state you live. <laughs> so anyways. Um, Here are the eyebrows. This is a case where two serial killers in the family operated at completely separate times. And their murders were absolutely unrelated. And in the second one, the, the other brother had a partner himself. See, that's why I've discussed this before with you and the rest of the team is that sometimes I think that there is a genetic sequence. I think there is too. That causes this to happen. In certain cases, yes. In certain cases. Mm -hmm. Not all, not all. Right. But definitely in certain cases there's something genetically programmed. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are certain people who are genetically programmed that way, but there are other things that bring that genetic disposition out. Correct. You know? So, yeah. So these are two brothers... They're a year apart. There's Larry and, well, Danny's the oldest and a year younger than him is Larry. And Larry committed his murders first. Then Danny, I'm, I put David here for some reason. But then there's Danny Rains, who also had a partner when he committed his murders. So the two brothers. Hold on. When he was committing his murders, was he up in the no, Uper? He wasn't in the Uper. He was stupid. in Kalamazoo. And, okay, they're, okay. they're in prison up in the Uper. Just saying. For our listeners in Michigan, I, I do love y'all. I really do. But holding up your hand and showing people and then saying things like, in the youper, fucking retarded. Well, because it's a better way than, than saying, in the Upper Peninsula. No, that makes more sense. If you say, I'm in the Upper Peninsula. Okay, no, that makes sense to me. I'm from the youper. No, no. You know what? You, you, you Go drown yourself. <laughs> Grab some rope and hang yourself in your garage. This is stupid. <laughs> I'm so full of love. You are. You are so full of it. So, yeah. So, we have that. So, um, before I get too far into the story, I want to let you know that Danny, the oldest of the two, maintains his innocence. Okay? That is not what is so unusual because there are hundreds of people who have been convicted of crimes that maintain their innocence. I mean, come on. Um, Nonetheless, um, there are also many who agree with him. Yeah, many in the public and everything that agree that he is innocent. I, but I'm not going to get into his case so much today. Set Danny free. Set Danny free. Right. Nonetheless, Danny free. <laughs> I want to talk about the crimes of both brothers. Since their crimes are committed separately from each other, I want to talk about them separately to begin with. However, I'm going to start with the youngest brother, Larry, first. The entirety of his criminal activity began to unfold on May 30th, 1964, when a murdered man was discovered in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay? Now, early on... In the evening, at approximately 5 p.m. on a Saturday, a patrol officer came upon a Chevrolet parked along the side of the road. Uh, From the looks of it, the vehicle was abandoned there. However, upon closer inspection, the officer noticed that a stack of personal papers were strewn across the front seat. And there was also what appeared to be bloodstains on the bumper. Not wanting to overlook something, he had the vehicle towed back to the station. Okay? When he radioed dispatch to request a tow truck... A woman by the name of Thelma happened to be in the office. Finally, at the station, finally a missing person report on her husband, Gary Smock. With her partner, Louise. 
anyways. And she overheard the officer's description of the vehicle, and she said that it sounded like it might be her husband Gary's car. The last time anyone had seen him was the night before. After the car... It was the night before Larry and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring. Not even Gary, this this, this woman's husband. So I'm just saying. You're so bad. (laughs) After the car was towed back to the lot, the authorities were able to pop the trunk and located inside was the body of a white male lying face down at a pool of blood that appeared to be fresh. And a closer look at the items inside the car told them the body belonged to Gary Smock. Why can't he just be a male? Why does it got to be a white male, you racist? I'm not even talking to you anymore. You're racist. Okay. Please don't put semen in my salad. <laughs> it was the oh, my God. No, let me tell me about that. <laughs> y'all, y'all, this is in a little energy. So before we were recording today, I go through several emails. I go through my personal one. I go through my band one. And then I go through uh, the one for Brutal Nation. And what pops up? A story about the Red Robin in Clackamas, Oregon, that had concealed semen in a salad after a customer had made some racist comments. Now, normally, I'd look and laugh, except for one small thing. Our last staff meeting that we had was at the Red Robin in Clackamas, Oregon. (laughs) And he had... A and salad. Since I'm doing keto slash Atkins-ish type of diet, limiting all my carbs, I happen to have, because mine didn't, I said, no, it comes with fries, so I, but I want a salad. So I had a salad, and I've never been so grossed out in my life just to think that. I, it was a couple of weeks ago, and he wanted to puke today. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just thinking that somebody may have, like, I'm, I start thinking, did I tip well enough? Was I nice to the waitress? I mean, did everybody, was everybody okay? Like, the dude who brought our drinks, was I okay with him? Because I don't want to think that, like, somebody's whopping out their dick and concealing their, their fucking mm. love juice in my cell. That's gross to me. Yeah, gross. Disgusting. <laughs> that's so disgusting. I mean, unless, unless yeah. you're into that. I mean, that's yeah. fine. So anyways, um, he was a 30-year-old husband of Thelma at the station and a junior high teacher from the town of Plymouth, Michigan. Gary had been shot in the back of his head just below his ear, and ballistics tests indicated that the caliber weapon was a twenty-two. Very common. Yep. Both of his shoes were missing, and there was a cord tied around one of his wrists. This led the authorities to believe that he had been bound to something. After an inventory of his belongings was concluded, the authorities learned that his watch was missing as well. Now, a pathologist was able to determine an approximate time of death. He concluded that Gary was shot sometime between 6 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Saturday, and he died within five minutes of being shot. In an attempt to piece together the last 24 hours Gary was alive, the authorities started by canvassing the hotels and motels in the vicinity of where the car was discovered. By doing this, they discovered some of his movements on Friday. That day, he had an appointment with the Battle Creek Chamber of Commerce. He was trying to find accommodations for a Church of God youth convention that would be held there in the future. He had the Chamber of Commerce map in his car marking some of the local facilities, and he had told the officials when he left the Chamber of Commerce that he was heading to a family dinner. Apparently, the dinner was to be held at the house of his in-laws in Allegan. However, according to Thelma, his wife, the last time she heard from Gary was approximately 6 p.m. on Friday. He apparently called her to let her know that he wasn't going to make it home in time for dinner, but he would still be there shortly. There wasn't anything more until approximately 11 p.m. when someone said that they saw his car at a service station in Kalamazoo. 
The attendant there said that he remembered seeing two people in the vehicle when it came in. However, the authorities later think that that report was false. They're not, they weren't sure. Okay. Um, a forensic team was able to lift some prints from the car belonging to a whole with a whole palm print and a finger. And after running the prints, it was determined not to belong to Gary or anyone in his family. So they were hoping it belonged to the perpetrator. They also found another bullet on the floor of the trunk. And when they recovered Gary's wallet, it was empty. But there was a check had been written on sometime on Friday evening for $11 to cash. Now, remember, this was in the 60s. So... Um, now earlier on Saturday morning in Elkhart, Indiana, which was right up there on the border, there we go, uh, approximately 60 miles from where Gary's car was found, the authorities responded to a call. Charles Schneider, an attendant at a local service station had been shot in the head twice. The murder weapon in that shooting was also a 22 caliber handgun. Considering Gary's car still had approximately a half tank of gas, the authorities assumed it had traveled a minimum of 100 miles after it was filled around 11 p.m. Now that they had someone dead in Indiana and one in Michigan, both killed with the same caliber gun, they were coordinating their efforts. They had to determine if the same gun was used in both shootings. If so, the killer had managed to get away with approximately $100. Now, for past three months leading up to that point, um, 19-year-old Gary Lee, or Larry Lee Rains, excuse me, had been traveling all over the country. He was a violently impulsive young man, and his preferred method of travel was to hitchhike from place to place. Four days, actually, it was five days after Gary Smock's body was discovered, he went to a guy by the name of Arthur Booth's house. Arthur and Larry were only acquaintances, but that didn't stop the 19-year-old from telling the other man that he had done some bad things. Apparently, he confessed to killing some people. He told Arthur that he was going to find a priest to confess his sin, and after that, he was planning to commit suicide. Arthur managed to call and report all of this to the authorities around midnight. Wait a minute. Was he planning on having sex, too? He was looking for a priest. I was just wondering if he was going to dress up like an altar boy or what was going to... Oh, fine. Fine. He was 19. Well, there you go. He might have been like, hey, how about a little rompy-poo? You're so bad. Just saying. Just saying. So, anyways, law enforcement officials arrived at Arthur's house, and they were able to take Larry into custody. When he was arrested, he was still wearing Gary's shoes and watch. When they searched his person, he only had 15 cents on him, but he freely admitted that he was the one responsible for the deaths of both men. After Larry made his confession, he told them where they could find his 22 caliber handgun. The arresting officers secured it, and they sent it in to be tested. Now, according to Larry, Gary offered to give him a ride. When he got in the vehicle, he pulled out a gun and made the man drive down a country road. Once they were in a secluded area, he made Gary pull over, and that's when he robbed the man of $3. After that, he opened up the trunk and made the man get inside and told him to keep his mouth shut. With Gary hidden away in the trunk of the car, Larry got behind the wheel and drove off. At some point, Gary had started banging around in an effort to get someone's attention. Larry didn't want to draw the attention of law enforcement, so he pulled over to the side of the road in Kalamazoo, opened the trunk, tied Gary up, and shot him in the head. According to Larry, he shot the man twice, but the first bullet missed. After that, he shut the trunk, and that was sometime between, he said that was sometime between 8 and 9 p.m. Larry said that after he shot Gary, he became hungry. 
So you decided to go get a hamburger before driving to Indiana. I'm telling you, man, killing is hungry work. Well, happened with um, Leopold and Loeb. I was just going to say, I was just going to mention Leopold they and Loeb. They had, what, root beer floats and hot dogs? And hot dogs, yeah. <laughs> they, they they stopped for some hot dogs. Or, hey, we With just, the dead body in the car, right? Yeah, with the dead body. Mm-hmm. We just killed your cousin, the young kid. You know, uh, that's that's kind of hungry work. Let's stop and get some hot dogs. and Let's go to the soda jerk. Yeah. yeah. We're going to get a little bit of food. Don't worry about the rotting corpse in the car. Yeah, yeah. So he arrived in Elkhart while it was still dark. Elkhart, by the way, is where one of my uncles lives. One of my favorite uncles, actually. Um, so he waited until early morning before going to the gas station. In the process of robbing the station, he shot the attendant. With the money in hand, he got back in Gary's car and drove back to Kalamazoo. A short time after Larry left the gas station, a group of fishermen stopped by to fill their vehicle with gas. When they walked into the building, they saw the attendant laying dead on the floor. They immediately called the police in the Authorities quickly set up roadblocks in an effort to catch the killer. Apparently, Larry was stopped at one of those roadblocks. And with Gary still in the trunk, the authorities waved him right through. According to him, when they saw how calm he was, they told him to go ahead and keep moving. He wasn't looking all nervous and stuff, right? Like me, I'm always nervous. You're always nervous. I'm afraid of people. I believe you. So he returned to the car to the same spot where Gary had picked him up so that he could abandon the car. After that, he decided just to hitchhike the rest of the way into Kalamazoo. Right before someone picked him up, he saw the blood on the bumper. However, he didn't want to risk getting caught. So rather than clean it up, he left. He said by that point, he just didn't care anymore. Um, Once the lengthy interrogation was finished, Larry was booked in the county jail and held for arraignment. After his hearing, he told the court that he didn't want an attorney. Upon hearing this, the judge ordered him to undergo psychiatric evaluations. Once the examinations were scheduled, Larry changed his mind. Now he wanted a lawyer. The court appointed Eugene Field to be Larry's public defender. However, the psychiatric testing was still conducted as scheduled before Eugene could see his new client. Before Larry was arrested, detectives had started looking into the possibility that Gary's killer was responsible for other deaths as well, more specifically the death of another attendant at a Battle Creek service station. On April 6th, 20-year-old Vernon Laben had been shot to death with a 22 caliber handgun. The service station was along the I-94 inter- inter- interchange, there we go, in the vicinity of where Gary had driven by on May 29th. When the detectives asked Larry if he was responsible for Vernon's death, he readily told them he had been. Then, without prompting, he confessed to killing two more men in the two other states. Larry said that one of the men he killed had picked him up hitchhiking on May 23rd around Death Valley, and according to him, the guy couldn't stop talking about the fact that he didn't have any money, so he shot him. That man's body wasn't discovered for more than two years later. The second man was another filling station attendant somewhere in Kentucky. Now, even though Lloyd, even though the, even though Larry didn't have a criminal record up until that point, throughout his teenage years, he had already developed a reputation for being a troublemaker. He had been raised in Woodward, Michigan, and his home life was filled with instability and abuse. He was one year younger than Danny, and they were typical brothers raised in the type, that type of environment. Uh, they were relatively close, not only in age, but in confidence as well. You know, because if you're in an unstable, abusive, you know, you're usually really, you know, close with your siblings. Usually. Usually. I'm not. Yeah, I wasn't either, but then, you know. 
But then again, I have a different view on my family. Well, then I've also heard that if you're closer in age, like one or two years, it's different. Because me and my sister are four and a half years apart. And so it's like, it's that dichotomy. When she got into junior high, high school, I was still in elementary school and I was a baby. And, you know. See, my brother Phil is only two years younger than me. And, uh, yeah. Well, you know, there's that too. He can eat a bag of dicks. Maybe he has. Probably has. He's, he's been to prison. He's been to prison three times. I think that he played football there. He went in a tight end and came out a wide receiver. Was he the the longest yard? <laughs> he was. I think that he dropped the soap a lot, and finally the inmates gave him powdered soap. No, no dude, we're, we're cool. That, just to prevent You're that like, from just happening. Just ask. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, it's like you don't have to keep looking back, even though you ain't got no soap in your hand. But, I dropped the soap. I better bend over again. Yeah. I hope nobody gets me from behind. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, they were also wildly competitive, and according to them, they both loved and hated each other at the same time, which I can see. Larry gave an interview to a guy by the name of Dr. Conrad Hilberry, during which he said, I used to hit Danny with boards, throw knives at him, shoot him with bows and arrows, and shit like that. Once Larry turned 18 in an effort to get out of the house, he enlisted in the military. However, he wasn't there very long before he wound up in the stockade, which led to his discharge. And before enlisting in the military, and again upon his discharge, he had become obsessed with a married woman. When he began to feel as if he wouldn't be alive much longer, due to his constant thoughts of suicide and one failed attempt, he became a wanderer. He took the next three months to set out on his hitchhiking travels. He traversed around Ohio, Kentucky, and then over to Nevada. Um... Larry later stated that had anyone taken the time to find out what his attempted suicide was about, they might have given him treatment. Then perhaps he would have been prevented from killing all those people. As is typical with... This was back in the 70s, though, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop that right there. You want to know why? Because in the 70s, we've seen this time and time again, the treatment was bullshit. It was. It was total fucking bullshit. But then I always get into, as, and I say this right here, as is typical with people like Larry, he blamed his actions on the actions of others. You know what I mean? So, however, there was one time in an interview when it seemed as if he was aware of his lack of morals because he said, there, is, there has to be some part of me left out. Okay? Now, when, before the trial starts, the prosecution kind of reveals the strategy. Although Larry admitted to murdering five people, the prosecution chose to only charge him for the murder of Gary Smock. They withheld the other murder charges in the event he was acquitted of this one. To gather as much evidence as possible, the sheriff's department actually sent out teams of officers to search remote areas in the western part of Kalamazoo. What exactly were they hoping to find? Anything that could qualify as physical evidence regarding the shooting death of Gary. For instance, during his confession, Larry stated that when he robbed Gary, he remembered tossing a flashlight from the car window. So they wanted to see if they could find that. All right. My whole thing is, is I've never been to Michigan, but if the back roads are in Michigan or anything like they are in Iowa, there are endless ones out there. <laughs> I mean, endless. Most, Where, you know. Most states are like that, though. Like when you get out of populated areas, right. get to some back roads, it's like, which one were you on? Um, that one. That one. They're like, dude, there's 50 fucking ones around yeah. that. I don't yeah. even know where the fuck you were, dude. Yeah, it's just like, because I couldn't even imagine them trying to go out even in the small town i grew up in you well, know going even, out to the back here, roads there, there like, one time, find a flashlight there's one time that me and my my last ex-wife went on a drive over mount hood and i just found some offshoot of a road it's not even on the map right and drove around that and it's 
pretty. It was pretty long. It went pretty far in the friggin' woods. I mean, right. Way. That's how that one family at Christmas that one time they went to go cut down a tree up at Mount Hood, and they went. It was snowing really bad, and so they pulled off on a road, thinking they, you know, and then they got stuck and ended up freezing to death. Remember? Holy shit! No. Oh yeah. So, because you can get like turned around up there. Yeah, this was this was during the summertime, so I wasn't worried about freezing to death. Damn. Just kidding. We had sex in the car in the truck, though. Does that count? I did not care. <laughs> I don't recall saying, hey, did you have sex? Yes, I did. Okay. Well, I did not ask that you felt the need to tell. So, I just love traumatizing you. You this do, apparently. Makes, makes my world. That just makes my day, man. Okay. So Larry's trial was held in Kalamazoo County Circuit Court and began at the end of September. During the preliminary hearing, Donald Burge, the assistant prosecutor, filed a motion to enter approximately 20 slides into evidence. All were full-color photos showing the deceased body of Gary Smock. As you can imagine, Larry's attorney, Eugene Field, objected on the grounds they were too graphic in nature. They were designed to inflame the jury should they be allowed to, into evidence. In the end, the judge only allowed 12 of the 20 slides. Okay? So the strategy of the defense was going to be based on whether or not Larry was criminally insane. <laughs> we can almost predict that nowadays, right? That's the first thing they go with. Yeah. That's where now they do psyche vows before they start yeah. trials. Well, so therefore, he entered a plea, not guilty by reason of insanity. To help prove his client wasn't legally sane, Eugene actually called several psychologists to the stand. All of the psychologists called by, on by the defense testified that Larry was suffering bouts of temporary insanity each time he committed a murder. At some point prior to pulling the trigger in all five instances, something happened to trigger Larry's blinding rage. A rage that he had built up against his father who had never spared an opportunity to beat him. To support their theory that each time Larry murdered someone he was killing his father, they pointed out two things. One, Larry's father once worked as a filling station attendant. Okay? Number two, each of Larry's victims bared a resemblance to his father. Now, when Larry was interviewed in prison later, this is what he had to say about the murders he committed. There was never a plan. It was a natural thing. It always seemed to me like I was an actor in a play. This would indicate that all of the murders were impulsive and lacked any sense of direction. Almost, what do they call them? Disorganized. Correct. You know? My nose is just sorry. Um, however, Larry also made it clear that he didn't have any remorse for what he had done. Almost as if his only interest in the deaths of the five human beings he murdered was on a technical level. For instance, he made comments about how with one of the murders, the blood flew farther than he had expected it to. And then when he was talking about one of his other victims, he said the man, quote, bounced a couple of feet in the air. Okay. He so it's like he was, he was kind of withdrawn about it. But then sociopaths are. They're <laughs> yeah, like exactly. separated from that. Yeah. In the end, the jury wasn't buying the fact Larry Lee Rains wasn't legally sane when he committed the murder of Gary Smock. They found him guilty of first-degree murder, and he was ordered to serve the rest of his life in prison. Now, he immediately filed an appeal using the fact that he was examined by the prosecution psychiatrist before his legal counsel was present. After reviewing his claim, the Court of Appeals granted him a new trial in 1971. In the second trial, Larry again tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. However, early on in the proceedings, it was very clear to him that it wasn't a strong strategy. That's when he suddenly changed his plea to guilty, and he again received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. As a part of the plea agreement, the court allowed him to legally change his name. After reading a novel 
by Hermann Hesse, the German author Hermann Hesse, he chose to make his new name Monk Steppenwolf. Now, I'm going to get into that here. This is the last part. Right. So, the Hess novel, Steppenwolf, was published in 1927, and it was the author's way of exploring the gap that is often found between one's physical and mental reality. In the novel, Hess described in detail the struggle of the main character and trying to bridge that gap with other things such as emotion, spiritual transcendence, and sensual experience. Have you ever read Steppenwolf? Nope. Oh, Oh, it's a good book. I mean, I read it once in high school. I'd like to read it again. I've listened so, to the band Steppenwolf, though. Okay, I get Does into that, that here in a minute, too. <laughs> the novel was written after Hess had, had experienced several crises in his personal life, and, he, and it was somewhat autobiographical in nature. For instance, prior to writing the novel, Hess's first and second marriages had failed, and he'd started to hang out in bars around Zurich. During that time, he became an alcoholic with th- frequent thoughts of suicide. It culminated to a point where he retreated to a Switzerland residence and became a reclusive monk. In the novel, the main character, Harry Holler, is a middle-aged intellectual in a state of despair. His self-view is that is that of, quote, a wolf on the steps, and separated from a world he no longer understands. The act of living seems rather futile to the character, and he's utterly and it's utterly depressing to him that he can no longer find any source source of joy in his world. Even though the human part of Holler still desires and finds comfort in the act of socializing with others, he feels disoriented. So the inner tension pulls him in a different direction. And he finds himself thinking about committing suicide. Before he can commit the act, he encounters a hedonistic young woman who seduces him, okay, with her charm. And he is so enthralled by her that he tells her he's willing to do anything she asks of him. Anything. I will do anything you command. And that's when she informs him, there will come a day when you will agree to kill me. Okay? Now, at that point, he embarks on a lifestyle of sensuality and freely indulges in everything life has to offer. Kind of like you with your cocaine and your sex and your women. <laughs> and he begins to once I again... I women. I don't, have, I don't have a shit ton of women anymore. I'm, I didn't say right now. You said, you know, I thought meant like in like the current. I no, because I, I said you're cocaine and all your women. That, oh, wouldn't, yeah, the, that yeah. would imply not right now, right? Sorry, my brain's out. I'm fucking exhausted. <laughs> See, just listen to what I say. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. What? Mm-hmm. So, he begins, after, you know, after he sets out on this, and you know, enjoying the, freely indulging in everything, he begins to once again feel joy in his freedom of this new life offers him. However, he, he's able to admit that he's slowly losing touch with his spirituality, Okay. So he's then immersed into what's called a magic theater, and everything for him is distorted. It's almost like an acid trip, okay? During his immersion, he locates the young woman and murders her because he believes that she was, that's what she wanted from him. And then he's criticized in this world of hallucination for his overly serious actions. The essence of this novel is to explore the idea that one individual is made up of numerous selves, okay? Through the, in, the transmigration of souls, an individual can pass into more than one form throughout their life. Basically, life is always about some sort of compromise, and we all have more than one chance to get it right. Okay? It's not like this is it. The only key we need to open the doors and to find new self is laughter and, a, you know, an inner love, kind of. Now, he also took inspiration from the rock band. 
There's also a rock band named Steppenwolf, which was formed in the 60s. During that era of music, existential ideas were the rage. Their hit songs included what? Born to be Wild and Magic, Magic Carpet, Carpet Ride. John Cade, the band's founder, was born in Germany and was inspired by Hess's novel as well. In fact, there's a correlation between the music of the band Steppenwolf and the character of Harry Holler in the novel. The band's music challenged the cultural values of the norm and expressed the world's spiritual unrest during the era of the 60s. Harry Holler also had an interest in music, and in fact, in the Magic Theater, he had an opportunity to meet his musical idol, Mozart. So, uh, music has always offered mankind a way to transcend the spiritual world, which you agree with. 100%. Yeah, I mean, your church is your guitar. Well, yeah, and it's... As a musician, because now I get a first... My first-hand thing of this, it's it's multi-layered. Number one is that the way that I was raised, being emotionally stunted, um, I express a lot of shit through the music that I write. You do. Um, and uh, it, it's not just lyrically, it's musically as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with every note, with every time signature change, with, with everything, it's, it fits a specific need to tell the story that I'm trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, lyrically, that's obvious. You know, right. you, can read, you can read the lyrics and go, okay, I, I read this story. I, mm-hmm. I, I know what you're trying to say. So it, it helps me emotionally, and, uh, and, and it helps me be a better person uh, life-wise. And I can look back, and I can actually read the whole story of my life through everything that I've written. Yeah. But it also, in a lot of ways, I believe, and I've been told this by people who've listened to my music, is that it's helped them with their life because they can. Re- it's a relatable story. Okay. Type of a thing. Well, I can't say that after getting to know you and I mean, because you and I have talked about it before. You see music everywhere. I do. You know, everything has yeah. a musical note. So now, ever since you know, ever since you and I've had those conversations, I listen to songs differently. I try to say, okay, what are they trying? What do they want me to feel here? You know what I mean? Right. And it's like there are some songs out there. It's like, wow! Now that I'm listening to it this way, it makes more sense to me. Exactly. You know, because you feel that the happiness here and you feel the sadness there. You know what I mean? Right. The Depending longing, on, yeah. the loneliness, the despair. Yeah. Every emotion under the rainbow uh, from aggression to depression is within the confines of, of music. Mm-hmm. And I do. I see music in everything from the from the computer running to cars driving. I hear musical notes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because so, you yeah, and I talked about late. that before, because where you hear musical notes, I see snapshots, you know, and because that's how, you know, I look at things. I look at things as different snapshots. Um, oh, my Except for in porn. In porn, I look at it and go, oh, you're moaning off key. That is totally the wrong key to be moaning in. That should be an F major, not a B flat. Yes, exactly. Because, baby, you not B flat at no, all. that's right. <laughs> Anyways, so... Um, when it comes to Steppenwolf, both Hess's novel and the band have been able to give people a way to mirror themselves so that they can see other possibilities available to them and move on to the ones that they think will work. However, Larry Raines' decision to choose the name Monk Steppenwolf might not really be that intellectual in nature. Many believe that they were just that they just allowed him to accept himself and absolve himself of murder. Yeah, that could be. You know, I've changed my name. I'm no longer that guy. No, yeah, it's so, very much a possibility. Yeah. So, but that's why I'm ending it today because I didn't want to start on the next portion because it gets into Danny and his partner's crimes. And then I'm going to tie it all in at the end. Ah, sweet. So, yeah. So that's part one. 
All right. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out our Medium page. Uh, I'm sorry. Check out our uh, Patreon page. Help the show out a little bit if you can. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation, and there's an asshole driving by my house. What a dick. Not everybody stops on Sundays for us. They should. They should. I agree with you, but they don't. You got a quiet street, man. Jesus Christ. Anyway. You don't live in this neighborhood, dumbass. Sorry. Oh, my streets are pretty quiet, man. It's the other ones that are shitty. Except when, when the Mexicans show up to mow my lawn. But anyway, check us out on Medium and Crime Beat on Medium. Just type in Twisted at Brutal Nation. Get all the information without any of my bullshit. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved. We will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.